Welcome to the Fraser Rice Podcast. I'm Fraser Rice. Today we have Blake Morgan, who is the founder and CEO of ECR Music Group. ECR Music Group consists of an interconnected set of businesses aimed at helping its artists realize long-term creative and commercial success. Blake is also the driving force behind I Respect Music, a grassroots political effort that promotes musicians' rights through legislative change. Oh, by the way, he's also an amazing musician in his own right. Thanks for coming on, Blake. Thanks for having me. So we have a lot to cover there. From a musician standpoint, the business is obviously changing. And I think it probably makes sense to take a step back and just review how the business of music works. To start, what is the process of developing musicians now? Well, I think the from an artistic standpoint, the process of developing musicians is really the same as it's always been. At least it is for us, which is that we are putting the development of the music itself and the musicianship first. Nobody has ever woken up and just been a great artist for all the mythology of anyone that we could think of. Uh, the inspiration, I think, sometimes is given a little too much bandwidth, and the perspiration required is not given enough bandwidth. So developing an artist, developing uh, how they're going to enter the world with the music that they're making, I think that process today isn't really any different than it was when Ahmet Erdogan was doing this with Ray Charles decades and decades ago. Um, how you are able to sustain that and how you're able to help build an artist's career has changed dramatically. But I would argue that the art part, the music part, and what goes into working uh, on your own art, because I'm an artist, and working with other artists to try to develop their music and their careers from a musical standpoint, I would argue that it really hasn't changed. And you're still doing the same kinds of things to try to get better and try to fully realize all of the artistic possibilities that you have. So that said, you get to Carnegie Hall by practice, practice, practice. And I guess the, the new way to think about things, uh, at least in athletics and so on, is that perfect practice makes perfection. How does that relate to developing an artist, aside from finding them and, and having them go out and uh, go on tour and do live shows and, and be in the studio and do different things? Uh, what do you do to try to help focus the artist and get them better at improving the things that need improvement? So I wear three musical hats on a daily basis. I'm a recording artist and singer-songwriter. I'm also a record producer, and I also own and run ECR Music Group. So the last one sounds like a business job, but it's really a music job, too. So I'm constantly vacillating between those three jobs at any one time in any one day. The reality is there's a lot of development that goes on in the recording studio. There's a lot of development that goes on from a label standpoint. What's our first single? What's the musical gateway drug uh, that we want people to experience to, to meet a new artist? Um, and then there's also my own job as an artist myself in trying to realize m what I feel is my own artistic possibility. The thing that I love about the label that I've built is I think in comparison to other labels in the world, this sounds like a shameless plug, but it, it really is the truth as to how we work. The, the position that most labels are in is they say, okay, how much money do we need to make at this thing? And then what's the best art we can get away with making to make that money? And that's a perfectly reasonable business model. Uh, the way I stumbled into owning and founding this label was backwards, which is actually why it's worked, which is we say... What's the best music we can possibly make? And then, oh my God, how are we ever going to make any money doing this? <laughs> a, a, a true fa Faustian bargain. <laughs> right. The second part is very, very challenging. Um, but the first part is non-negotiable. I simply don't have any other reason to want to have anything to do with running a, a record label. 
So what happens is, let's say you're an artist I just met and you're interested in making a record and we start making a record together in the studio. Our mission is very simple, which is to make the record of your dreams. You, the artist, what your vision is. So I would meet with you several times and we would talk about what record you're interested in making. And sometimes I say, you know what, that sounds like a really interesting record, but I'm not actually really interested in making that record with you, although it sounds terrific. Your polka, accordion, Actually, what I'm describing is awesome. But, <laughs> but, I was going to say electro-polka why, why accordion. Why did I hang polka, an accordion on you? But, <laughs> but it's up to me to sign on to a vision that an artist has. A lot of people don't understand what being a record producer means. And the simplest way to describe it is it's being a movie director. It's exactly the same thing. So perhaps you're an actor who's written a great script. It's up to me as a director to say, I believe in this script. I want to make this movie. Or say, you know what? Actually, I'm not interested in making that movie, but it sounds really cool anyway. Once we do that, then there's a remarkable and beautiful responsibility on the artist, which is, okay, you're in a position now where we can make the record of your dreams. So what is that record? The ability to say no from your perspective, you cut out so much jibber-jabber and static for the artist that way. Sometimes no is the best thing you can tell somebody. Absolutely. And I want to be really clear. That no is not because I secretly have millions and millions of dollars and I can pick and choose from my yacht or my lair from where I control the media. This is simply an existential choice. It's who I am. I I can't spend six months making a record I don't believe in. So what I discovered um, – you know, right when I really started getting into record producing and, and then uh, founding the label is, you know what, if I hold to that ideal, if, if I only make the music I really, really believe in, I'll go to the ends of the earth to find a way to try to win an audience for that music. But if I do it the opposite, uh, and I've been offered like a lot of money to make some records that I just didn't want to make because I can't, I can't do it. So I, I think I am fortunate in some way, which is that's not that's a non-negotiable line with me. I just can't do it apparently. Like I just really don't like grapefruit juice. I can't learn to love grapefruit juice. I just can't do it. So it's actually a very lucky thing for me because it's a boundary I can't break. Well, and I think <laughs> the quality shines through then. If you're committed that that that's right. that, that you've reached a baseline level of persistence with the project that hopefully sees it through at a level that is not only excellent from an art perspective but then trickles into uh, something that the, that the marketplace will respond right. to as well. I think you can feel it when you see a movie or you hear a record, when you know that the people who made it just sweated and bled to make that thing beautiful. And you can tell when they don't. I mean, I, I always relate to the, the part in uh, Gimme Shelter where, where the background singer's voice cracks. And yeah. to me, that is one of the most authentic yeah. things that comes out in rock and roll That's and right. it's a it's a, a goosebump creating uh uh situation and it, and if it sounds like if you're able to that's do right. something like that and that's what you strive for eventually the public will catch up with it well and i think that if you're not one of the major labels i would argue that the way i try to come at the music that i make is like if you don't have a gazillion dollars it's actually a it's even more important that you say no because it's the beginning of a marketing strategy. The beginning of the marketing strategy for the music is we are all in. We believe in this 100%. And that emotion and that adrenaline communicates to press and to radio and to, uh, and to an audience, to the people who this piece of music may actually resonate with. So it's actually the beginning of the marketing strategy to believe in it like that. So that's really what happens in the nurturing of an artist department, which is I get to sit down and say, well, why don't you play me some of these songs? What are these about? Wow. Okay. Into the record making process. So it's like script supervision. 
into shooting the movie, into finishing the movie in post-production and then saying, and that's really how I started the label, which is, you know what? I'm not willing to, to bleed and sweat over this piece of music that we've now recorded and made and hand it over to someone else who's going to mess it up. I want to be responsible for getting it out into the world to try to win that audience that this music would resonate with. That's really how this all started for me from that standpoint. Those other hats, if you will, came into my life that I wear every day, aside from being a songwriter and artist myself. So to veer back into the business side of things, which is one of the one of your three hats, which you have to pay attention to, how do you reconcile the the definition of success economically with the definition of success for the artist and in a sense you as well because you're invested in it uh, sort of emotionally and uh, yeah. artistically yeah um i have there are two parts to my answer to that question it's a great question um the first one is when i made my first record called anger's candy it was uh, on phil ramone's label called n2k and I made it in the Bahamas with Terry Manning, who worked on Led Zeppelin three and has worked with Lenny Kravitz and Shakira and ZZ Top. And, you know, he's a Hall of Fame record producer. And he's one of my dearest friends today. Uh, in fact, he's on ECR Music Group now. So oh, terrific. We've, we've turned it around. But uh, I remember a moment, actually, that I really think saved my life. And I don't I don't say that uh, to be melodramatic. It, I really believe it. It did. Which is on the very last day, I was still recording one little piano part. And uh, I, we recorded the piano part. It was a, for a bonus track on the record. The record had been mixed and everything. And I literally, with my coat on, played this piano piece and then said goodbye to everybody and ran to the airport and flew out of the Bahamas back to New York City. And I sort of, you know, with the airport and the luggage and everything, and I'd been in the Bahamas for two months recording this record. And I sat on the plane finally <sighs> just to have a moment. And I looked out the window and I remember saying to myself, listen, whatever happens from this moment on with this record, okay? If the plane goes down right now, on some level, it doesn't matter because you made it. You made this record that was the record of your dreams. And you've had this in your head for years and years and you've done it. And no matter what happens from here on in, don't forget this moment. Don't forget how you feel right now, Blake, because this could save your life. And I, I had that internal dialogue with myself and it did save my life. Because every time everything has gone south on me since, I think of that moment. And things went south even with that record, with that label. But that's one definition of success, which I think that there isn't an artist in the world truly worth their salt, where if they actually know that they've made something that they really wanted to set out to make and that they really believe in and they've really done it, that is an irrefutable level of success, even before you get to the business part. Now let's get to the business part, which is, and what always comes to mind to me is Winston Churchill's definition of success. He said, success is being able to go from failure to failure without losing enthusiasm. <laughs> so, um, you know, it's like fail, fail again, fail better. Um, so, or fail upward. Fail upward. That's right. So, you know, success, I think there's the artistic part, which is, did you actually make the thing you set out to make? Did you climb the artistic mountain? From a success standpoint, financially, which is really what we're talking about at the end of the day, you can't actually win an audience for an album or for an artist or build a career without at some point the people who are working to make sure that that happens and for the artist himself or herself, you can't do it without getting paid. And the machinations of how musical people, music makers 
are not getting paid. We used to not get paid in some very concrete ways, and we actually kind of fixed almost all of those. And then a whole new salad of ways <laughs> where we no longer get paid has entered the picture over the last decade or so. And uh, what you're seeing in music, especially in the United States, and I really do mean that, what you're seeing, what you're seeing in the musical landscape is fewer and fewer people being able to transfer themselves from being acclaimed amateurs to viable professionals in music. And that's true if you're a session drummer. It's true if you're a recording engineer. It's true if you're a singer. It's true if you're trying to be the next Bob Dylan or the next Joni Mitchell or the next Aretha Franklin. So how you define success, the only thing that allows me to keep going, and I'm doing well, but <laughs> the only thing that allows me to keep going is that first part. That's why I want to tell that little story about me on the airplane, knowing that Yes, you know what? The shows I'm doing now are the best shows I've been doing. This is my best record. The record that we just made for that band, that is exactly what we set out to do. Without that emotional knowledge, I wouldn't be able to keep going. And I don't know any musical person who would be able to. So that is very hard to achieve, but I think you have to, to then be able to fight the next battle, which is, okay, how do we stay afloat? How do we keep going? How do we win the audiences that we're trying to win for our music financially. So before we delve into the financial a little bit more, one quick question on the artistic. Do you ever get out of projects where you, I guess I'm sort of looking at authors or uh, movie makers who come out and say, you know what, I got to a certain point and that's just where it stopped and I gave up and that's the thing I had and we just had to move on from there. Uh, do you get to... Do you get to that level of realization that you talked about before where you feel comfortable or are there times where uh, you get to a point where there's nothing left to give, but you may not have actually gotten where you wanted to? Short answer, yes. But I've never experienced where the hiking expedition was lost and never heard from again. <laughs> right, where, where, <laughs> where you got stuck on Everest and that right. was it. <laughs> I've, there've been, I've gotten to the summit many times um, and I've also gotten halfway up the mountain and realized, you know, either collectively or just on my own, like, okay, you know what, this was really important. And we've established a base camp here. And that's a lot more than was ever going to happen for this individual or for this project. So as a, as a producer who is also then running the label that these records are coming out on, yes, sometimes you get halfway up the mountain and you say, you know what, I don't think this is actually going to make it to the summit. And I'm talking artistically, like, okay, maybe, maybe this is as far as this, as this artist is going to develop, or maybe this is as far as we're collectively going to be able to take this, unless some very big things change, but that's not up to me. So sometimes you do establish base camp and celebrate that, but I've never just had the hiking expedition lost. Uh, to follow through on the analogy or never take off in the first place. There are lots of things I do respectfully just say no to. And that there's a reason, which is like, I don't want that to happen. Um, so, so back to the financial part of it. I, I remember growing up, uh, Motley Crue got signed by, I think it was Geffen or something like that, and they ended up on the cover of a magazine lighting $100 bills on fire. And I said, this is, hmm, there's something really cool about this. They're not only doing amazing things, but they're getting rich doing it. And mm -hmm. the reality of it, even back then, was not the case. For for our listeners, maybe it's just a quick, uh, quick and dirty outline of, of how musicians get paid. And I know there's a big difference between uh, sort of creating the music from a songwriting perspective and then creating the music from a performance perspective. In this day and age, and we know that the, the dollars are coming down for a variety of reasons, which we'll delve into, how do musicians get paid for, for the work that they do? 
Um, well, it's very, very hard now. And Motley Crue stories aside, I'm sure if they could do that over again, they would not shoot that cover <laughs> and they would not light the $100 bills on fire. That's right. Um, you know, and I, I've read, I don't know if this is true, but I've read many, many times that, that uh, you know, lottery winners uh, over and over again, you know, you win the New York State lottery or you win some big lottery. And these are people who are destitute several years afterwards because they don't know what to do with their money. And, uh, that's my day right? job. And I can tell you right now that fast wealth uh, generally does not last unless yeah. you're able to really... Uh, imprint some principles right. early on that people can live uh, for a long time on. That's right. Um, so, you know, in the old days, and let's let's just – so let's take off our artistic hats and all the touchy-feely, beautiful stuff that I actually wake up in the morning for. Now we'll just talk about um, <laughs> the <laughs> – The dreary day the, job. The dreary, that's right. The, the dreary part. Um, so in the old days, and I'll say that the old days, you know, ran from the beginning of recorded music till about 2000 or so, 2000, 2001. You know, in those days, uh, you had all kinds of problems with record labels who have been, at times, I feel appropriately demonized for their behavior in draining the swamp of money for artists and and uh, behavior towards artists in general. However, on their worst day, those record labels, large, medium, small, or out of the back of somebody's pickup truck, what they were all doing is they were they were at the end of the day investing in artists' careers. So the money that was given to – I mentioned Joni Mitchell earlier or Bob Dylan um, or Prince who's been on everybody's mind this year, uh, certainly mine. You know, Prince didn't really start making money for people until – including himself – until his third, fourth, fifth record, which really, really blew up. But there was a time for a long time where artists were given a chance for two or three or even four records to discover who they are and alongside a label – so labels did a tremendous amount of good um, while also screwing a lot of people over, for sure. Um, one person once said to me, oh, those days, this was, this was like wistfully. This is a really major music legend. And he said, oh, those, those days, those were great. You know, they, um, that was back when the thieves could dance and they loved the artists they were raping. <laughs> <laughs> um, but the thing is, is that in the late 90s, honestly, partly through legislation and partly through uh, artists speaking up, and exerting their own power with their own leverage because of their audiences, a lot of the really systemic issues with label exploitation were really being minimized. It was a much better environment in the late 90s where artists – and when I talk about artists, I'm primarily focusing on middle-class artists, which is a term up until the last couple of years a lot of people really haven't – it's an idea that they haven't really gotten next to. Sure. They think of – well, there's Justin Timberlake and Shakira up here and Beyonce and Katy Perry. And then right below that, there are guys and gals who tend bar, right? There's superstars and nobodies. But the reality is music is like most professions, which is that there's a gigantic middle class of people who you may have heard of, you may not have heard of, who have rabid fan bases or growing fan bases – like any middle class in any other profession, making their way in the world and with mortgages and car payments and health insurance. So it's out of that middle class that our superstars would come from, right? It wasn't an American idol environment where you could go from nobody to somebody overnight and then go back from being somebody to nobody almost overnight, like you were saying about fast money. So there was an environment of career building and many, uh, if not most of the really tragic but true <laughs> uh, label problems that that music was having. They were really, it was the best environment in a really, really long time. And then internet piracy hit. 
Um, most people start talking about Napster, okay? Which is, you know, I think that uh, moment, the Napster moment is a moment that really got into everybody's uh, consciousness. Everyone is aware of that. When that moment hit, the bottom of the music world fell out. And the beginning of the culture of music for free began. So fast forward to today, you used to have hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of viable record labels in this country. Now you have several handfuls, if that, who are really able to invest in artists and really able to take a chance for a record or two or three. But more and more what we see is the blockbuster mentality. You know, again, music is a little more amorphous for people in their consciousness, but film is not. Somehow we all understand film more. So like a record producer is like a film director, right? Well, in film, don't we all know that we're more likely to see Transformers 12 than we are to see Silver Linings Playbook 2, right? Uh, and that's because there's a fast, sugar-high thing <laughs> with that blockbuster mentality. They're desperate. They need to make their money this quarter. They're not even thinking about next quarter. This exists in music as well. But the difference is, is that music is an art form that has always not been, it's never been a trickle down um, uh, profession. It's always been a bottom up profession. Out of the muck comes punk music, comes hip hop, comes rock and roll, comes R&B, right? So it's out of nothing that these incredible art forms have come. The blues comes from, <laughs> I mean, the wreckage of hope, right? <laughs> right? So, so um, you know, so what, what, where we have arrived today is the ladder, if you will, where someone starting out might really work hard back to perspiration and have some inspiration and have some magic and be able to climb a rung on the ladder and climb another rung on the ladder and climb another rung on the ladder to financial viability to financial success, and also to win that audience. What we see now is there's a rung at the bottom of the ladder, and all of these other rungs have been kicked out because there's no money. And then there are a couple rungs up there, really high up on the ladder, which is where the Aerosmiths and the, and the Tom Petty's and the Paul McCartney's, and yes, the Beyonce's live. But there's no way for people to get up to that position without winning a lottery ticket. There's no hope anymore of like, maybe I'll be a, an entry-level employee, then I'll get into being an assistant manager, then I'll be a manager, then I'll be a director, then I, I can actually move up, you know, in my career. That's what has happened. And it's tragic for American music because the very people we need to hear from, the next Joni Mitchell, the next Aretha Franklin, the next Marvin Gaye, the next Kurt Cobain, they're there, but they're not able to get enough bandwidth for people to discover them in time for them to make this their profession. They have to move on to do something else. Well, the part that, uh, taken from my own experience, I would I would be good for buying anywhere from 12 to 24 CDs a year, probably even more than that. And at 10 to $15 a clip, that it sounds like that was the, that was the money that uh, that helped support those middle class artists and the upper class and so on. That's right. The ones I'd heard of and maybe the ones I hadn't heard of, but maybe saw them at a concert opening for another band. And it seems like th with the with the onset of not necessarily piracy, but the digital uh, platform for music delivery, that's been replaced in a mm -hmm. sense by my ten dollars a month that I pay to Spotify, right. and that only a fraction of that. Uh, a very, very small <clears throat> fraction of that gets to the artist based on how I right. how I access the music. So what Spotify would tell you is they would tell you that 70% of all their revenue goes to rights holders. So goes to music makers, essentially. 
um, or their labels. But that's, again, that's a right that's assigned from a music maker to a label. So they're saying, well, 70% of our revenue is going there. So let's just do a little quick math, okay? Um, so uh, a one-year subscription to Spotify, it's $10 a month, so it's $120. So 70% of 120 is $84, okay? So you have a one-year subscription to Spotify, and this is where I then also say that the vast majority, vast majority of people who actually use Spotify's platform are not subscribers. They're listening for free, so it's even worse. But we'll just talk about the subscription model. So $84 a year would go to the the music makers for that one-year subscription. So you have a subscription to Spotify for one year. You can listen to tens of thousands of songs over that year, thousands upon thousands of albums, right? At the end of that year, all of the people who made all of that music are splitting $84. It's almost like the uh, the mortgage crisis when you had millions and millions of mortgages tied up in one security and uh, that, that money just did not flow out. That's right. Uh, and then when things cratered, then, then that industry tipped over. That's right. If you can believe it, it, it gets even worse when you, cu- when you get to radio. And that radio and how artists are not paid for radio airplay in this country, that's the tip of the spear for the I Respect Music campaign, which you mentioned. Mm-hmm. So what most people don't know is that artists don't get paid for radio airplay in this country. And in fact, the United States is the only democratic country in the world where artists don't get paid for radio airplay. What does that mean? It means this. If I say R-E-S-P-E-C-T, you probably think of Aretha Franklin. Well, Aretha Franklin didn't write that song. Otis Redding wrote that song. Aretha Franklin has never been paid one penny for that song being on AM, FM radio in this country. No artist has. And for the last 90 years... (laughs) That has always been the case. However, the rest of the world has gotten this right, and uh, every other democratic country pays artists for radio airplay. What's more, because the United States does not pay artists for radio airplay, the rest of the world is now saying, the rest of the democratic world, is saying, well, you know what? If you're not going to pay our artists in the United States, we're not going to pay American artists here. Meaning the UK is essentially saying if Adele isn't going to make any money for her tracks being on the radio in the US, well, then here in the UK, we're not going to pay Justin Timberlake. It's become a global trade embargo against the United States. The United States being the country from which rock and roll originated, R&B originated, hip-hop originated, punk music arguably originated, the blues originated, jazz originated. We really do write the songs that make the whole world sing. There's always a discussion about innovation. Well, you know what? Rock and roll is an American innovation. Jazz is an American innovation. Blues is an American innovation. And now the rest of the democratic world has a de facto trade embargo against our country because we're not paying artists for radio airplay. It's the oldest injustice to American music makers. And it's the only one I can think of that actually is even worse than what's being perpetrated by the Spotify's of the world. <laughs> so, so let's dive into that. I think a lot of people would not understand that this exists out there. And I know I Respect Music is a grassroots effort and you're trying to educate our lawmakers and to get them to see the light that there's a pretty significant injustice being done to our artists. And in a sense, one of our great exports, which is exactly. intellectual property, is being harmed abroad. And I would think that might even spill over into movies, et cetera. Exactly. If, it, you, know, if you catch the wrong political leader on the other side of, in the wrong way, they may say, you know what, you've got one set of rules that doesn't work for us in this media. It's going to 
we're going to take it to you on another media. Well, copyright as a concept is really inconvenient for nefarious people who don't seem to have any moral center. <laughs> That's about as heavy as I can swing a bat. <laughs> That's pretty <Okay>? heavy. <laughs> so, you know, copyright is really inconvenient for people who simply want to use stuff and make money on it, except that they seem to forget about the people who actually made the stuff. Music is one of the things America still makes that the world still wants. And the people who make that music should be paid fairly. That's the total argument of this campaign. And so many music makers now who've stood up, you know, to fight for these issues. You know, the reality is for American music makers not to get paid for radio airplay is absurd. Some people say, well, you know, isn't radio really on the out? We're all going to be streaming and everything. Well, you know what? The National Association of Broadcasters brought in almost $18 billion last year in advertising alone. Advertising sold around our music for which we are then not paid. By the way, I should also add, radio stations are allowed to play my music without my permission. They're allowed to play my tracks without my permission and not pay me anything and then sell advertising around it. How does that work? Well, that's how it works. It's just, it's sort of like, well, wait a minute. So you just go into the ocean and kill the whales and that's, yes, that's what you do. <laughs> no, I always, I always thought in copyright, uh, you, you, the copyright holder, whether it's you, the musician or the record label had the ability to restrict people from, uh, from broadcasting yeah. if you didn't want them to. We do not have the right to do that from our recordings. From a songwriter standpoint, we have barely uh, any control over what happens to our songs. But again, we're forced into a position as songwriters, which is different. So, uh, you know, it, it starts to get into the weeds. That's why I talk about RESPCT. That's why I talk about Aretha and Otis. Mm -hmm. So artists not getting paid for radio airplay, that's the Aretha royalty, okay? Then there's a songwriting royalty. That's the Otis royalty. From the Otis standpoint, as a songwriter, radio and other people are allowed to use my songs in this way without my permission, but so long as they pay me a crappy wage I never agreed to. There's something called a consent decree, and there's a, there's a rate that, is, uh, that I'm paid. It's a rate, by the way, that I've never agreed to, and it's a rate that Congress has never agreed to. But as a songwriter, nobody's allowed to do anything with my song until I do it. So once I put my song out in any way, then other people are allowed to cover it, I don't ever like to put the Arethas and the Otises against each other. The Otis part of me and the Aretha part of me um, are, are both really upset at how we don't get paid. <laughs> and neither part of me is ever mad at the other part of me for getting paid, if and when I do. One of the narratives that the opponents of American music makers have put into the bloodstream is they've tried to pit Aretha's against Otis's and Otis's against Aretha's. They've tried to put featured artists against songwriters. And they've put it sort of out into the ether that um, there's only so much pie. And if artists get paid more, songwriters will get paid less. Songwriters get paid more, artists will get paid less. This is completely untrue. The problem isn't what crumbs we should fight over as music makers. The problem is we actually deserve an entire loaf of bread. And $18 billion for the NAB, National Association of Broadcasters, and $0 for artists is patently unfair. There's no person who's ever heard this and said, well, that seems pretty reasonable to me. <laughs> and when asked, as I've confronted um, members of the NAB to their face about this, their response is, yes, but you get untold exposure for your music being on the radio. And I always say, well, not only can I not pay my bills with exposure, 
you know, people die from exposure, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, and and exposure, it, it doesn't necessarily lend to sales anywhere else. I mean, you've right. got, if you're relegated to subsisting on CD sales, which are falling through the floor because people are going to pure digital formats. Uh, we've already talked a little bit about the streaming and the fractionalization that's occurred there. Or if you're left to sort of divvy up concert receipts. Right. Uh, well, it, it is it is a new world. It is a, it is hopefully a brave one. You know, um, the, I think the thing about AM FM radio, terrestrial radio, as it's called, you know, this isn't new. This is old. And that's why in the midst of all of these fights about music, this is the one I wanted to focus on primarily because this has nothing to do with technology. It's not a new technology. <laughs> it's, it's AM FM radio. It's still the biggest in the country, you know, form of disseminating music. And their argument as to why artists shouldn't get paid is the exposure argument. And the other one is, well, it'll put small radio stations out of business. Not only has this not happened anywhere else in the world, it's actually fostered, if anything, a little bit of that middle class of music makers because it's smaller stations that are often able to take a chance on spinning a record or, or playing the music of a new artist, right? We now have, thanks to an incredible amount of public pressure – certainly with the I Respect Music campaign, but from elsewhere as well. Everyone has really joined forces in music to fight for this royalty, for the artist royalty on, on radio. And we now have a bill in front of Congress called the Fair Play, Fair Pay Act, which would ensure that artists, American artists, are paid fairly on all forms of radio, on all platforms. And it would, it would end that global trade embargo against American music makers as well. So take us through a little bit how you learned about the political process. Uh, you come from a musical background, you're running a label, and now suddenly you're a grassroots politician along with your other interests, how did you learn which levers to pull, which places to go to, and garner support from a broad perspective to try to help get this pushed through in a nice way? So I was not doing any of this stuff just a couple of years ago. And one day I got an email from the founder of Pandora uh, named Tim Westergren. And it was a blanket email that thousands upon thousands of music makers got. And it was an email that said, hey, we would love you to sign on to this letter that we're bringing to Congress to talk about how awesome Pandora is. And really what we'd love for you to, to help us tell them is that Pandora is awesome with its awesomeness. And we're awesome for, for musicians and middle-class musicians, especially because it's awesome. <laughs> and, um, and I don't know what was going on with me this particular day, but for whatever reason, oh, and it was one of those folksy emails that comes right from the CEO, like, or right from the, <laughs> whatever title he had given himself at the time, the founder. Um, so it's like Tim at Pandora.com, right? And for whatever reason, I wrote back and I said, I would love to believe that your heart's in the right place. But the reality is the letter you're asking me to sign on to is in support of a piece of legislation called the Internet, the so-called Internet Radio Fairness Act, whose mission is to lower my royalties by 85%. You're hoping I don't notice that what you're asking me to sign on to is something that will hurt me. So I can't sign your letter. I'm really sorry. And I just did this and batted it off. And I sent it to one friend of mine who's a podcaster in Los Angeles who I had gone to music school with. And uh, I said, I just think you're going to get a kick out of this. And I sent it to him and I went to the gym. And he called me back almost instantly. And he was like, dude, are you going to blog this? And I said, no. And he said, well, can I put it on my blog? And I said, yeah, knock yourself out. And he did. And it blew up. And it blew up so much so that by the next morning, Mr. Westergren wrote me back. Blake, there's a lot of disinformation and misinformation out there about Pandora. We're not seeking to lower royalties at all. And in fact, we're seeking a way for musicians to participate in the business. And he went on for a while. 
But it was that line. We're seeking musicians, a way for musicians to participate in the business. That's really the line that changed my life in terms of advocacy and going to Capitol Hill, which is what I, where I've been going. When I got this letter from him, I really cracked my knuckles and said, okay, you know what? Now it's on. Right. And I wrote back and I said, sir, you know, when you say you're seeking a way for musicians to participate in the business, you, you've forgotten something. We are your business. Without us, you don't have a business. The Huffington Post got a hold of this email exchange, the full exchange, and published it that day. And that really blew up. It became a huge story, so much so that the next morning after that, my podcaster friend in LA called me and said, man, have you checked out Pandora's stock today? And I said, yes, because that's what I do every morning when I wake up. <laughs> uh, he said, seriously, man, you need to check it. And in the first half an hour of trading, um, they had lost $130 million of market cap based on the terrible PR of this email exchange. That's really the moment that got me into this because – and I'm completely un, – I'm unashamed to admit that I saw Pandora's stock drop and I went right over to my liquor cabinet and had a shot of whiskey. And it wasn't celebratory. It was like 10 o'clock in the morning, half an hour after the market opened. And uh, it, I, was, I was scared. My hands were shaking because it's like, oh, my God, I wrote two emails. What did I do? <laughs> well, you, you, you exposed a business model that no one really understood before. I, I, I guess that's how it felt. I was like, okay. And then it was like, well, wait a minute. What else can I do? Very soon after that email exchange, it was such bad PR for them that they withdrew the Internet Radio Fairness Act, which was anything but fair. But they withdrew it. It was a huge legislative defeat for them. They had spent tens of millions of dollars lobbying for this bill. And with a couple emails and a lot of pressure from a lot of other people and a lot of press about that email exchange, they had to withdraw it. So I began to think, well, what, seriously, what else can we do? The thing that's important to note about internet radio, like Pandora, is they do have to pay the Aretha royalty. Congress said when, when internet radio really sort of was given birth to, they said, listen, we really blew it on the AM FM thing 90 years ago. And that's going to be hard to fix, but we got to try to do it. But in the meantime, any new technology, like satellite radio does have to pay, internet radio does have to pay. What Pandora was trying to do is they were trying to get rid of the Aretha royalty. They were saying, well, it's not fair that AM, FM doesn't have to pay Aretha, but we do. And Pandora could have actually said, you know what? AM, FM has gotten it wrong for 90 years. We're going to get it right. We're honored to pay music makers fairly. And, if, and because of that, we're the ones you should stick with. Pandora's the good guys. They had the opportunity to do that, but they didn't. They basically said, those guys are getting away with murder. We want to as well. So what I thought was, well, what if we tried to get this royalty, the Aretha royalty, at all forms of radio? What if instead of being against a bill, what if we were positive? What if we – all of this energy and all this press that this thing has gotten and all the people are waking up about this, what if we tried to harness this energy towards something positive that was powerful that where people could act? That was the beginning of the I Respect Music campaign. I wrote an op-ed in the Huffington Post a few months after that first email exchange about an experience I'd had at career day. I was asked to go back to my high school and talk about art at career day. And I said to the kids, if you're in the art room instead of the lawyer room or the banking room, something has called you here and I hope you follow that calling with everything you have. And I hope you do it without a plan B. And the teacher at the back of the class stood up and said, don't listen to him. You should always have a plan B. And I said, this is the problem. We're, we're discouraged from following our profession before we can even start. I wrote that story 
Um, and a girl who was in that class came to my next concert here in New York and presented her CD to me. And she said, I am going for it. I am following my calling. And her mom was there too. And they were crying together. I wrote this really emotional story and I ended it with, I respect that young woman for following her calling. And I respect artists. I'm going to try to speak up more and do more. I respect her. I respect music. That's the first time I wrote those words. Oh, very powerful. And it was. That, that turned out to be the biggest music article in the Huffington Post for the entire year. Sorry for the, the backstory, but it's no, necessary it's to say, why would people care about a grassroots campaign out of nowhere? Well, it wasn't really out of nowhere. This kind of stuff I'd been doing for about six months. Right when that article came out, people spontaneously started tweeting, hashtag I respect music. The first one that I saw was from a young woman in the Philippines right after the tsunami. And she was standing with her acoustic guitar on a balcony. And she said, I have something worth fighting for. I respect music. All of these musical fights, whether it's with Spotify or with radio or with piracy, that's the biggest problem. All of this comes down to a fundamental lack of respect for the value of music and for the people who make it. So I think this campaign has gone right to the heart of it. When I launched the campaign a couple of weeks after that, I had known what I was going to do, but I didn't tell anybody. Um, so I just put a countdown clock at irespectmusic.org. By the way, I woke up in the middle of the night and suddenly thought, oh, my God, I should probably grab those domain names. And to my horror, I was able to. Nobody, <laughs> nobody in the history of the Internet had ever grabbed irespectmusic.anything. So I did. Um, and I just had this countdown clock up there for a week. And the, the press and the grassroots, uh, the, the viral nature of the, the op-ed that I, writ I wrote and the email exchange and all the stuff I'd been doing that fall – it got to a point where people didn't even know what the site was going to do, and they were posting, uh, it's on, hashtag I respect music. And suddenly classrooms started doing it, and rock stars started doing it, and movie stars started doing it, and middle class musicians, and kids in a garage with their guitars, and just all over the country, thousands upon thousands of people just started doing this. And my joke is like, this is a huge amount of trust they were giving me because I could have put it up and it could have been like, I respect music and I hate puppies, or like it could have been a terrible thing, you know? <laughs> um, and what we put up is what's there right now at irespectmusic.org. It's a simple petition that simply urges Congress to support artists pay for radio airplay. And it has three did you knows. Do you know that the United States is the only democratic country in the world where artists don't get paid for radio airplay? Do you know that the short list of countries that the United States shares this position with includes Iran and North Korea? And did you know, because artists from around the world aren't getting paid here, now American artists aren't getting paid there, like I, like I talked about before. Uh, and we started posting some of these selfies that people were taking. Um, and my friends were like, listen, you know, this is a petition that's going to the offices of the House Intellectual Property Subcommittee. It's not a particularly sexy get for all of the attention you've gotten for the, the, the op-ed and stuff. So, you know, if you can get 500 signatures, that would be shooting the moon. That'd be huge. And by the way, it would rattle some cages. And I was like, you know what? I think I can do, I think, I, I think we can do a lot better than that. I think I can, I think we've really done something here. I think there's a moment here. And they said, well, you're crazy. I said, I think we can get a thousand. And they said, you're crazy. And they were right. I was crazy because we had a thousand in a day. That's and it, amazing. And it's now up around 14,000, something like this. That's how I ended up on Capitol Hill because of the attention and the press that this got. And because of really the only thing that ever really changes things, right? Congress cares about things when people do. And when people force Congress to act through respectful protest of one kind or another, and this petition and the, the social media phenomenon that unlike uh, some others, you know, that I'm sure we could think of that have a huge spike and then disappear, this has just grown and grown and grown and grown. 
If you go to Twitter or Facebook, you'll see people using it for music issues, but you'll also see it for like, I just did this gig and the club owner stiffed us the check. I respect music or, you know, who knows a good lawyer? I respect music. Or I think I just finished the song that I've been trying to write my whole life. I respect music. It's become a symbol and a battle cry that gives music makers some community as well, that we're in it together, that we hear each other. Um, and it's become something, I think, powerful and emotional. It's become sort of the, you know, uh, hey, do you have a Kleenex? It's become, it's become the, the name of the thing, the brand of the thing, which I'm in awe of. And it's, it's incredibly beautiful. It's a really cool, it's an attitude, it's a principle, and it's, it's a concept that while it's got some definition from where it came from, it, it, as you said, it's got broader implications going forward. And I think that's something to be pretty proud of, it, having, I, having created it, whether you intended to at the beginning or not. <laughs> I'm in awe of how it's resonated and how it continues to. I'm incredibly proud of the people who sometimes put their careers on the line to support the campaign. And I'm also proud of how far the campaign has gotten. Um, when I was first invited to go to Capitol Hill, this is a petition to Congress, right? And I swore to people, you know, these would be delivered. Every person who signs the petition, by the way, it's delivered instantly to those offices. But I actually then was invited to go to Capitol Hill and meet with my representative, Congressman Nadler. Um, I live in his district. He also happens to be the person who has authored the Fair Play, Fair Pay Act. So it was, there was some providence there. He's really the guy in Congress who's working tirelessly and fearlessly on so many of these issues. And I brought this phone book of, of signatures uh, to those first meetings. And that was really powerful for people as well, because it was a promise delivered. You know, I'm going to sign this petition and I'm going to get involved in this campaign. And oh my God, the guy spearheading the campaign is now on Capitol Hill meeting with our leaders. I've been there now 10 times meeting with Senate offices and endless um, members of uh, the House of Representatives. And now that we do have Fair Play, Fair Pay Act proposed, we also have the Songwriter Equity Act, which is a piece of legislation that would help the Otis half of the royalty picture. We need both of these uh, desperately to start to put that bottom of the music industry back <laughs> on the bottom of the pail, if you will. But it's been an incredibly powerful experience uh, going to Capitol Hill again and again to meet with offices. Um, Two just quick thoughts about what that's like. The first is at a time when our country has never been more divided between red and blue, this is an issue where that does not seem to matter. Representative Marsha Blackburn and Representative Jerry Nadler, these are the two authors of the Fair Play, Fair Pay Act. And Marsha Blackburn is as red a Republican as you are ever going to find in Congress. And Congressman Nadler is the bluest Democrat you're ever going to find in Congress. But they agree about this, and they don't agree on the color of dirt. But they agree about this. They agree that American music makers should be paid fairly. We as voters are so hungry to see our leaders work together when they can. And if they disagree about something else, okay. But can't you find some common ground where you could actually get something done for Americans? Well, this is one area where it really is true. Congressman Collins is the one who's put forward the Songwriter Equity Act, a very red Republican. And Hakeem Jeffries, a, a representative from here in New York City also, an incredibly blue Democrat, they're working together on that piece of legislation. So this is a good story about Congress, where they're actually working the way they're supposed to on issues where they do agree. But there was a meeting I was having with a member of Congress, and, uh, and I said, you know, I was talking about this, the, the middle class in music. And I was saying, you know, these are, these are people, including myself, who are, we've got health insurance, we've got mortgages, we've got car payments, and just like everybody else in the middle class, 
but with piracy and, and now with the streaming economy, you know, the musical economy has just been decimated. And this member of Congress leaned forward in his chair and he said, you have a mortgage. Wow. <laughs> They'd have thought you came down from outer space. Right. And before I could really react, it was a really beautiful moment. He said, listen, forgive me. Forgive me for saying that and forgive me for asking that question. But I've simply never heard that before, which is why it's important that we're having this meeting. Of, and then he looked, he sort of looked up and said, of course you have a mortgage. You know, we don't hear that. We hear about the superstars and then we hear that it's tough for everybody. But you've got a mortgage and you've got health insurance. We're here in Congress constantly beating our fists about the middle class. Well, here you sit. And I said, that's right, sir. It's the so distinction it was, between a musician and a professional musician. That's right. And they just did not, they had no idea. He, it's a, he just hadn't said it. And, and I have to say, very much to his credit, he called himself out on it. That moment and watching that idea take form in the heart and mind of a member of Congress is absolutely what's necessary for us to win these fights. And truly, and without spreading sunshine everywhere, these are fights we are starting to win now. So it's, it, there's been a sea change. Well, I hope in this election season that I respect music and that the artist rights fight gets some prominence. As you said, it transcends party. It transcends a lot of ideological bounds that, it, that I think many people find to be pointless. And so it's an interesting time uh, for the movement to continue to take hold. I would think that there'd be reasons for both candidates, Trump or Clinton, to really look at what's happening and that there's a real opportunity there. I think that we have a chance in this election to demonstrate not just that I respect music, but I respect music and I vote. That if other people are allowed to have single issues that drive their votes, so are we. Again, these are issues for music makers wonderfully, and I would argue refreshingly, that don't seem to be attached specifically to party. Let's get back to one of your final hats, and that's your job as a musician. You're... Oh, right. <laughs> I can't respect music if I don't make any. Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, you've got – you're on your way out west yeah. uh, to uh, embark on a little west coast tour. Maybe talk a little bit about what, uh, what your plans are over the next few weeks. Yeah. And love to hear a little bit more about what happens when you get back to New York. Sure. Um, yeah, so next week I'm, I'm heading out on a 10-day west coast tour – that we're kicking off in Las Vegas at House of Blues, um, doing two nights there, and then San Diego and Hotel Cafe in Los Angeles and San Francisco, and right up the West Coast all the way to Seattle. So it's a 10-day tour of the West Coast. And then later this year in October, I'll be going to the UK for at least a week of dates. Um, so there's a lot of performance this year for me, a lot of travel. But one really surprising, I'm, I'm willing to admit, and beautiful thing that's happened over the last year is I have this ongoing residency uh, at Rockwood Music Hall, which is my favorite music venue probably anywhere. Um, and uh, I, did a, I had a sold-out eight-month run there uh, this past year, and uh, I was really pleasantly surprised that it turned out to be such a success. And uh, I'm really thrilled that Rockwood has asked me back for a second season. So that kicks off September 14th here in New York City at Rockwood Music Hall Stage 3. So it's this two-week West Coast tour, then back to New York September 14th for the season premiere, and, uh, and then off to the UK. So it's a lot. <laughs> you are a busy guy. <laughs> Blake, thank you very much for coming on. Uh, to find out about I Respect Music, what's the best way for people to get involved? For I Respect Music, you can go to irespectmusic.org. And go to Twitter also and check out the hashtag. There's a ton of information. People share stuff. It's breaking news there all the time about pieces of legislation or things you know, that are happening in this part of the, the music world. And uh, I encourage people to sign that petition. 
and uh, and post a photo with the hashtag I respect music. We'll pick it up and uh, I'll repost it and retweet it. And uh, you can join the party and join the campaign. Terrific. And then to keep track of uh, your musical whereabouts and what you're up to, what's the best way to do that? My site is BlakeMorgan.com and I'm on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram as at the Blake Morgan. Excellent. Blake, thanks so much for coming on. Thanks for having me. Thank you very much, everybody. This is Fraser Rice with the Fraser Rice Podcast. You are listening to Blake Morgan, the founder and CEO of ECR Music Group. He is also the driving force behind the I Respect Music grassroots political effort to promote musicians' rights through legislative change. Thanks again and have a great day.